mind that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name, would care to feel my hurt. Who am I? Welcome to Who Am I? with Pastor Greg Tyra of Harvest Chapel in Williamsport, Indiana. We're glad you could join us as we teach through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Today's lesson is one in which we know you'll be enlightened to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's listen in to Pastor Greg as we launch today's lesson on Who Am I? To John chapter 4, as we continue through the gospel according to John, God's gracious gift. Now, if you remember, when we closed, we were finishing up, and we actually, let's read verse 36 of chapter 3. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And that's because we're born dead. We're born with the wrath of God. But his people are not appointed for wrath. So we know that, uh, and I personally believe, and you can study the scriptures, I believe that when you look at biblical consistency, I believe in a pre-tribulation wrath, or excuse me, pre-tribulation rapture of the church, that God will deliver his people out before he brings his wrath upon an unbelieving world. Notice the text. That's what it's talking about. It's a prefiguring of that, that the wrath still abides upon them. Because all of us are born, just like 317, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. We were already pronounced under sin. We were already condemned when we were born. We were already under wrath. So you have to come to Jesus and believe in Jesus that he's Lord and that God raised him from the dead, or you remain under that wrath. And of course, the word believes is the word pistio in the Greek, which means to entrust your spiritual well-being into something, and in this case, into Jesus the Christ, God's anointed, the one he has appointed to be lifted up on the cross and to die for the sins of the world, and yea, raise again on the third day, which is the evidence that he lived a perfect life. And let me just digress for a minute, because I said something last week, and I wanted to correct that. Uh, last week, I said uh, that we were supposed to honor and obey our father and our mother, and we are as children, but it's actually in the scriptures, I misstated it, just like to point that out. Somebody pointed it out to me. If you'd look at Ephesians 6, uh, it, it'll clearly clarify this. Yes, children are to obey their parents, and then as they grow up and they leave and cleave to their spouse, now they're supposed to honor them, it says in Ephesians 6. I put that together. Even when you leave and cleave, now you do not have to obey your parents the same way once you leave from underneath their household. So listen to what it says. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So it has the connotation that they are training you in the way you're supposed to go. So, and then obey means, listen, to hear under. 
Even when you hear the word obey with the gospel, it means to hear under with the intent to obey, the intent to follow or be obedient to, or here it is, to conform to a command or an authority. And see, we, were, we are supposed to be listening to obey, to conform to God's authority in our life. And that's what salvation is about, that you have come back into the house of God and you've given your life to Him and you want to come back underneath His authority, which Adam and Eve walked away from. So it says, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. And then it separates it and says, honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. So there is a separation because when you grow up, you're supposed to leave and cleave. And so I just wanted to correct that because you don't have to obey them if they tell you to do something uh, as an adult, but you should honor them. But what does honor mean? Listen, honor means this is to prize them or to fix a value upon. So you're supposed to still give them honor, and then you're, but you're supposed to give it perspective of what I'm doing. Because you have to now put your wife or your husband first in your new family. And you begin to put your children first. But you still should give them honor that is due them. So I wanted to clear that up because last week I said, even as an adult, you had to keep honoring and obeying. And really, it's just honoring. I would encourage you to obey them where you can. That would be part of honoring them. But if they ask you to do something that's ungodly, even as a ch child... You should be very careful in that. Okay, so let's go back to our text. Now that I've muddied that up a little more. And we will begin in 4.1. I'm going to read quite a bit, but I don't know if we'll get through all of it. Uh, what an amazing text we come to this morning. Um. Let's read 4.1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst 
But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have said well. I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you are now with is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for coming and finding us, for seeking us out and speaking to us, meeting us where we're at and drawing us out by your love. Pour out your spirit now, Lord, and wake us up. Give us light that we might walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, for the days are evil. Pour out your Spirit upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now back in 4.1, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, Commentary verse 2, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, so he instructed them how to baptize. We're talking about baptizing in water, dunking people to identify afterwards that they go down in a watery grave and get back up. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he must need, must had go through Samaria, the King James. Now, He's going to end up, we'll see probably in verse 46 or so, that he's going to end up in Cana of Galilee. He's going back to where he did his first miracle, um, where he turned water into wine. Now, the text is kind of difficult, and you have to think about what's going on. Last chapter, we were given the commentary over in uh, uh, 324 that John had not yet been thrown in prison. Now, I think what's going on here in verses 1, to, 1 and 2 is that John has gotten thrown in prison, and they hear about it, and then his disciples say, hey, wait a minute, the Pharisees know now that you're baptizing more than John was, are they going to come after you? And if you'll remember in chapter 2, when his mom asked him to make wine, he said, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 
And you're going to see that statement many times. And what you see is people trying to push him into a place, trying to hurry him up. But everything is done according to the Father. Everything is done in perfect time. And he's going to say, it's not yet my hour. So right now, just in case they're coming, maybe they're going to come and try to get him and put him in jail also, or they're concerned about it. Here he goes and he takes off. Now we know that he knows all things, so we have to be careful with just reading into the text what I'm telling you. But at the end of the day, because of the hubbub, they're going to take off and they're going to go back to Cana of Galilee. Probably end up after going to Cana, they'll go to Capernaum, which is where his headquarters ended up at. All that just to try to explain that. But notice what he says in verse 4 which is really where we pick up at, is verse 4, where he says, he must needs, plural, not the way we speak today, must needs go through Samaria. And if you remember this word, we had this word, this Greek word, must needs, in 330, when John the Baptist said, he must increase but I decrease. It's the same word, must, needs. It's something that is needful. It has to happen. It's necessary as binding. It it, it has to happen because it's according to the Father's will. With Jesus increasing in our life and us decreasing, that's the way sanctification happens. It is necessary for you to enter into heaven. It's necessary in the life of a believer. There should be that evidence Well, what's he saying here where he must need go through Samaria? Well, he's under the direction of the Father, and he has a meeting with a Samaritan woman. He knows where she's going to be. She's an outcast. Listen to me. She's an outcast. She's going to be there, we'll see, at 12 noon, the hottest part of the day, when all the other people are taking a siesta. They're all asleep because it's so hot in this culture. But she comes out to the well because she does not want to be around anybody because of her reputation. So she's coming to this well to be alone, to get water, to go back. And Jesus says, I must needs go where she's at. Because listen to me, we are the Samaritan woman. We're either Nicodemus or the Samaritan woman. Nicodemus, proud, religious. Nicodemus thinks he's okay, and he comes to Jesus by night because he doesn't want to ruin his reputation. And Jesus meets him where he's at. Jesus meets him, and Jesus is pretty curt with Nicodemus. Jesus says, you're the teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things? Because he thinks he's okay when he really is not okay. But Jesus comes and he meets us where we're at. Wherever you're at, whatever mountain you're worshiping on, Jesus comes. Because the gospel is clear. It's for whomsoever. It's for everyone. It's not God's will that any would perish, but all would come to repentance. So he must need go through Samaria. Well, what is Samaria? If you're with us in the Old Testament, we're actually going through Uh, 2 Kings right now, and in chapter 17, Samaria was the headquarters of the northern kingdom. It was the headquarters where the ten nations left Judah and probably half the tribe of Benjamin, ten to twelve tribes, and they began to worship golden calves. 
You remember that? Rehoboam set up these golden calves. Why? Because he was afraid that people would go back to Jerusalem and worship where they were supposed to go. So he set up an apostate religion to keep the people happy. And he let them have high places where they burned incense to false gods. And, and, and you know what? The, the, the terrible, terrible thing is, is God waited on them and waited on them and kept sending them prophets and kept speaking the word of God to them about turning so that they wouldn't go into captivity and they wouldn't listen. They just wouldn't listen. And even the kings, there were some good kings and there were some bad kings. Even the kings would not take down the high places. Listen to me. Because they were afraid they might offend the people. And they wanted the people to be able to go about their business and do what they were doing and stay underneath the rule of the king. And Samaria became really the capital city uh, uh, of the northern tribes. And sadly, when they were going into captivity, God's timing was already there. The final king was Oshea. Spelled with an H. And his name means he's saved or he is saved. It's, it's a type of salvation. Yet guess what happened? In his ninth year, they go into bondage anyway because it was too late. God had already pronounced that the northern kingdoms would be banished. And so Assyria comes down and captures them delivers them, almost all of them, to an area that is now called Iraq. So if you want to know who they're fighting with, it's now called Iraq. Uh, and they're there now. And they left the poorest of the people in the land. And then they would bring their people to rule the land and other slaves in. And then they all intermarried together. And I don't know if you've been with us, you know that, that when they were there at first, what was it, lions came and attacked them. And so they did not know how to respect the God of this land. So they sent some other priests back to teach them again how to respect and revere this God. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes that's exactly what we get in Christianity is somebody teaching us how to pretend to worship God. And we're going to see in the text that you cannot pretend. You cannot go through ritualistic religion. You have to worship God in spirit and truth. It's a thing of spirit and truth. It's not just doing what the other person's doing. It's not just following the pattern of a church. It's not just following a denomination. But it's coming to salvation by the Spirit of God, coming into your heart and doing home makeover from the inside, where God comes and meets you. And you recognize this great love and you recognize this amazing grace and you recognize that you have no reason whatsoever to be a part of God's family and yet God would come and die for you and give his life so that you could have life. And that's why it's called amazing grace. So Jesus must need, it's necessary, it's binding that he go to Samaria and he's going to be redeeming the area that is filled with half-breeds, that's filled with the dregs of society. It's an area that still claims to know God, still claims that Jacob is their father in their history, and they're still worshiping on that mountain, but they have no idea who God is, much like the church today. Might I digress? I would not step on God's bride's toes, 
But listen to me, much of the church today that we see in America, what I call culturanity, say they know God, but they have no idea the God that they worship. People tell me all the time, I say, you know Jesus? They go, yeah, I know Jesus. They go, you read your Bible? Uh-uh. You don't know Jesus then. It's that simple. You know the name. You might have a head knowledge that Jesus died and rose again, but you have no idea about the character and the nature and the person of God if you're not reading your Bible because that's what God has given us, his love letter, to understand his character, his nature, his will, his authority, and what he is doing on the planet right now. You can come to know him if you let him draw you with his love. If you'll listen to his voice, you can come to know him. But it's much like any other marriage. I know that when me and my wife got married, we thought we, oh, we're in love. Puppy dog eyes. But we didn't know each other. But 25 years later, we know each other. And we're still growing to know each other. It's not something that's over. It's something that continues. It's meant to be for life. And with Christ, married to Christ, betrothed to Christ, it's supposed to be for eternity. And we're supposed to be finding out who this God is who would come and die for us, who would come and lay down his life. He became flesh. He became altogether like us. Listen, it's a marriage. There was no possible way for you and I to be redeemed. We didn't know we were lost. And he came and became our kinsman redeemer. See, we were actually in death. We were actually under the wrath of God. We were actually kicked out of the family of God. Could not get back into it, except God made a way. By marriage, we can marry back into the family of God and become the children of God once again. But it has to be by marriage. And that's what the relationship with God is, is a marriage. We become the bride of Christ, betrothed to Christ. And when we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved, delivered back into safety from the wrath of God. And it's because we're covered by Christ's blood, but it's because we marry into our kinsman redeemer. He brings us back into the family and gives us life and that more abundantly. It is through marriage. And right now, everything that a Christian is supposed to be doing is preparing for that wedding supper of the Lamb, adorning ourselves, becoming like Christ, finding out who it, would, who it is that would die for us, coming to know that person in our betrothal period so that we can recognize him when we cross the finish line it would not be good for us to show up at the banqueting supper table and not be clothed in christ remember the parable the father will come and say how did you get in here you don't have a wedding garment on and they will take them and cast them out and they will be gnashing of teeth will cast them into hell you cannot get into heaven without being clothed with christ and becoming like Christ. It's biblical. It's what the Bible says. It might not be what you've been hearing all your life, but you have to begin to be washed and cleansed, and that is in the Spirit of God, married to your spirit, and then teaching you truth, and you surrendering and learning it. Not for salvation, but because of salvation. Listen to me. We're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
But we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. That's Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. And so if we are saved, the Holy Spirit comes in and there's no way that we can stay where we're at and act the same way and do the same things because the God of the universe is now living in our hearts and giving us life. He's given us living water so that we would grow in a spiritual life. And so many people, they come to church and they think they're okay and they don't understand that they are the church. They don't understand that they need this living water. Jesus must need go through Samaria and he must need to come into your heart. He must need to come to your mountain where you're at. He must need to come to where you are worshiping at. Because all of us are worshiping something. But is it the Father? That's why Jesus came, to deliver us back to the Father. By marriage, to be delivered back to the Father. That's the plan. That's what He sent His Son for. That's why He sent His Spirit back for. This is all the plan. Are you married to Christ? And are you worshiping the Father in spirit and truth? He's coming to your heel. It doesn't matter what you're worshiping. He loves you. He died for you. And as we go into this, you'll see Jesus is talking about spiritual. And the woman is talking about physical. Oh, really? Isn't that what Nicodemus was doing and he was supposed to be the ruling authority? Yeah. Jesus was talking about being born from above and Nicodemus was talking about, how do I go back into my mother's womb again? He was talking about physical. How can these things be? See, we're all confined in this same place. We chase physical. We're looking to feed our face, sin, self, and Satan. And Christ comes to our mountain where we're worshiping at and he says, I am he. In fact, in the text, he's not even there. If you look at it, it's italics. What he comes and says is, I am. And this is what's going on here. It's one of the the, the greatest examples of evangelism that you're ever going to see because it's the Lord of glory evangelizing a woman who is the dregs of society. She's an outcast. The Samaritans were outcasts in themselves. The Jews would not even walk through Samaria. The religious Jews would go around Samaria. That's why he's saying, I must need go through Samaria because I'm going to tear down these walls of the religious establishment that acts like the Jewish people are so dirty, or excuse me, the Samaritan people are so dirty, you can't even walk through their city. They treated them so bad because they were half-breeds, not to mention that she's been married five times and is living in adultery with a man right now. Pay attention to it, and he comes to her. There's nowhere you can go that the love of God will not come to you. But you have to listen to him when he speaks to you and turn and repent and change your mind. And you will see when you read this text, it's a long text. I had to stop in the middle. Oh, she turns. She goes back to the city and begins to tell everybody about a man she met who told her everything that she's ever done. Do you know that God knows everything that you've ever done and he still loves you? He still died? Romans 5, 8, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? We didn't even know we were sinners. We just thought we were having fun. And he died for us. 
and her life changes. And it's impossible to meet Jesus Christ and keep going in the same direction. If you're still going in the same direction you were going in when you said you met him, you didn't meet him. You've been deceived. You've been duped. You've been lied to. You're a false convert. Listen, I don't mind saying it. I'm going to be responsible at the throne room for not telling the truth. And the truth is, if you meet the Lord of glory and the Holy Spirit, God himself, comes and lives in you, there has to be evidence of a changed life. And you'll tell somebody. You'll tell somebody. You must need go through Samaria. Where do you must need to go? Where does the love of God compel you to go? Because that's what Jesus is doing. He's following the Father's plan. And the love of God compels him to meet everybody where they're at and draw them out with his great love through wisdom. And again, Nicodemus, he was pretty blunt, pretty, uh, not rude, but he was pretty in your face with Nicodemus in chapter 3 because Nicodemus thought he was okay. Nicodemus was somebody of importance. Nicodemus had a title. He's one of the ruling authorities. But now we go clear to the other side of the spectrum. Somebody that everybody's looking down on. Somebody that had so much sin that it was obvious that they needed a Savior. Go clear to the other side. And this is what James says, or excuse me, Jude says, on some have compassion and others save with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So you have to have wisdom in the moment. And you see Jesus knowing how to speak to Nicodemus because he knows all men's heart. And you see Jesus knowing how to speak to the Samaritan woman. He knows how to speak to you. And the problem always comes in is how do we hear? Do we hear with the intent to obey? Do we hear with a physical sense and say, yeah, I want God to take care of all my needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus because I want a new car. I want a new house. I want a new, I want a new, I want some more. Or do we understand that God is spirit and he must be worshiped in spirit and truth? He's a spirit. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's a spiritual battle. There's a spiritual war. Everything is about spirit. We're not to regard anything as flesh and blood anymore because there's a spiritual realm that's trying to deceive you and keep you in sin and self and Satan. And you think it's okay because you haven't been hit yet in the side of the head with a ball bat. Guess what? Never going to happen. But you have to make right judgments in the spirit. Am I still under the wrath of God or have I come to God and I have a heart that wants to follow God and I'm listening to hear, to obey so that I can be washed and cleansed and make it to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So I can cross the finish line and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my rest. Not working your way into salvation. Listen to me. There's a positional salvation and sanctification. That's instantaneous if you truly believe. But if you truly believe, then that living water, the Holy Spirit, comes into your heart. And then there's a practical washing and cleansing where God begins. He takes the power away of sin. And then he begins to take the pleasure you have in sin from you. And soon he will take you from the very presence of sin when you're completely redeemed and glorified in heaven and you cross the finish line. It's so important that we understand this because we've been lied to by the devil in the church today. And we think all we have to do is say one prayer. We got to wake up. So that Christ can give us light 
and wash us and cleanse us and lead us into heaven. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the children of God. Not as many as that said a prayer, not as many as that play games and go to church, not as many as that, that waller in sin and, and hang out with the pigs and return like a dog to their vomit. Everybody stumbles. Everybody sins. I'm not giving you permission. God forbid that I would give you permission. But we need to wake up and understand that we're being washed and cleansed. We're being taken into heaven. We're being clothed in Christ, which is pureness, holiness. It's light. They're in him. There is no darkness. And that's the position that we have. But the practicality of it is, is he's taking the power of sin. He's trying to take the pleasure of sin and change our desires so that he can remove us from the presence of sin and deliver us to the wedding supper of the Lamb as a spotless and clean bribe without wrinkle or any such thing. Clothed in white. How can we be clothed in white? We're sinners. No, we've been betrothed to Christ as chaste virgins by the Holy Spirit of promise. When you believe, that's a positional statement. Practically, we know we're not chaste virgins and we're learning to walk it out and be washed and cleansed and do the will of the Father in all that we have been called to do. Verse 5, so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near a plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, when I pronounce words, just be careful with me because I don't pronounce them right. In fact, if you was going to pr- pronounce uh, 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 Joseph, it's Eosef. The J is silent. It's Eosef is how it's pronounced, if, if I'm even saying that right. So I just do it in the English way, okay? I'm not going to try to be uh, uh, crazy. But listen, Sakar. You know what Sakar means? Drunken. Listen, drunken. In the Hebrew, it's intensely intoxicated from drink. See, Jesus comes to us in our drunken state, wherever we're at. We're drunk, we're intoxicated with sin. We're intoxicated with self. We're intoxicated with Satan. And we're doing what we do, and we're worshiping, and we think we're okay, and we're the best there's ever been, and I know everything. And he comes to us and he condescends and he humbles himself and he comes from heaven and he says, hey, wake up. And he speaks to us. And when we hear his voice, we can come alive out of death, out of the grave. We can become a new creation. Or we can say, talk to the hand. I don't want to hear. It's our choice. We have a free will choice of what we're going to do. We can have new life. We can can find a new way to walk, a new way to live, a new way to talk. He's the only one that can do it. You can actually change your life. There's lots of people that do. They stop drinking and hanging around with those who do because they're afraid they're going to lose their wife. They're afraid they're going to go to jail. They're afraid that something bad's going to happen. And then they suck it up, but they still go living in their sin nature. They still continue to change their sin and move it somewhere else. And then nobody knows, or maybe it's something that's, that's acceptable in society. Well, that's acceptable in society. It's not acceptable with God. 
doesn't matter what your actions are. It's your nature that needs to become new. It doesn't matter what your actions are. It's your nature that needs to become new. You're born dead. You're a sinner. And the only way to enter heaven is to be born from above. And the only way to do that is to believe in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, I guarantee you he'll change you. And there'll be evidence that you're a new creation with a new life and a new way and a new thing to talk about because you'll be witnessing for him. You won't still be talking about the same old dead stuff. I always, you guys probably grow tired of hearing my uh, uh, testimonies, but I always remember that I got saved November uh, 17th, 1997. And I have watched John Elway lose three Super Bowls. He won in 98 and 99. I never, ever seen the games. Who would care about a football game after you come to know Jesus the Christ? Who cares? Who's playing in the Super Bowl? Who cares? What about souls and people going to hell? What about the lives of others? That's what Jesus came for. And if his spirit comes in, that's what would compel us. That's what we should be doing in our living, moving, and breathing. Is to understand that God has called you out to be the body. God has called you out to be the body of Christ, to be the hands and the feet. He's given you gifts, talents, and abilities. He's given you new life in his house, and he is the head of all principality and power. He's the head of the church. So we don't worship in buildings. This is not worship right here. This is equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Worship is proskuneo. It's like a dog licking the hand of its master. It's understanding where your help comes from, where your power comes from, that you've been saved from death. And it's amazing because you don't deserve it. And so therefore you understand that there's some reverence and honor you should be giving to God and that you're not your own. You've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. Worship is bowing down your will to God's will. Worship is dying to self and being crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Worship is not singing songs that have bad lyrics that don't even line up with Scripture. That's deception. We would do well in many churches in America not to even play music but to get back to the Word of God. To stop pretending and letting people think because they felt emotionally good with a few songs that they went to church and they learned something. Because when there's no evidence after you walk out of the church door, then you probably still abide underneath the wrath of God. And I would find out now whether you are or not because that's what the Bible says. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Do you have a relationship? Are you still under the wrath of God? Hell is a real place. Jesus talked about it more than anything else. Because that's why he gave his life so you wouldn't go there. He gave his life so you could have life. Listen, nobody's perfect except Jesus. We won't be perfect till we see Jesus. But are we even in the game 
are we even really believing? Are we saved? I'm telling you, I, I get in trouble for this, but I'm going to keep giving you messages like this. If you're not out there telling people, if you're not finding out what the will of the Lord is for your life, if you're not studying to show yourself approval, workman unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth, then I want to know what's going on. Are you under the wrath? I am not going to be responsible for your souls. It's hard enough to be responsible for my own. Jesus died for me, and I'm trying to walk this out, and I'm trying to be a cheerleader to get you to walk this out. How's that working out for you? Are you still drunk and intoxicated with Jacob? Notice, it's all in the text. He come to Samaria, which means uh, watch mountain or guardianship. It's a place that they were guarded at, worshiping at. And he came, he called the city Sakar, which means drunk and intoxicated, near a plot of ground that Jacob, the heel catcher, the supplanter, the deceiver, gave to his son Joseph, he will add. Listen, and that's what happens with most of them, just like with the Pharisees. They traveled land and sea to win one proselyte, and then they made them twice the sons of hell. And so many people are worshiping on some mountain in some place, drunk and intoxicated with themselves and not lifting up Jesus. They're not walking out and worshiping God in spirit and truth. And they think they're okay. But all it's doing is adding wrath upon wrath by the way they're living. And they think it's okay. And Jesus says, I must need go to them and talk to them. I must need come to where they're drunk and intoxicated, worshiping on their mountain, which is the wrong mountain. Because they should be worshiping in spirit and truth. Now, Jacob's well was there. Two different words used here for well. And in fact, one of them is even translated fountain, but it's still well. They basically mean rain. It's high door. It's water. One of them is a pit. This one here, it means a fountain, a well, through the idea of gushing and plumply, plumply, plumply in. I don't even know how to say it. It's a source or supply of water. This is the broken cisterns of the world, polluted water, where they're worshiping at, where they're drinking from. It's the physical water, and Christ wants us to be spiritual. He wants us to come into a spiritual kingdom. The other word for well, it's a hole in the ground for holding water. And it figuratively speaks of the abyss or as a prison or a pit. That's the two words that are used here. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus... Therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Uh, we're on the Jewish clock, so it's 12 noon. 12 noon. If it was the Roman clock, it would be six, but we're on a Jewish clock. It's hot. Jesus is coming. He's wearied. He sets down. Now, someone will say, well, he's God. Why would he be weary? Because he is flesh and blood. He's 100% flesh and blood, 100% God. Don't know how it works, but I like it because he came and died a living sacrifice for me. 
And I can believe that and trust that. So he's wearied, which confines him to time with us. It confines him to needing food and water. But you know what? At the same time, in a spiritual sense, he's wearied. It means to labor and toil. He's laboring and toiling. He's weary. He's coming to save souls. He knows what he's got to do. And sometimes it's hard to go do the will of the Father. It, it, takes, it takes some dedication. It takes the Spirit of God. It takes the walk of God. It takes keeping your, your nose set like flint toward Jerusalem. When maybe it would be much funner to do something else. Maybe it would be much funner to do what everybody else is doing. But listen, that's deception. When you start following what everybody else is doing because it looks fun, you have to be reminded this is not a playground. It's a battleground. It's a battleground for souls where the enemy you cannot see. But if we know Jesus, the Spirit, our friend, our King of kings and Lord of lords lives in us. So we know he's convicting us. We know he's rebuking us. We know he's encouraging us. We know that we're supposed to be led by the Spirit of God if we're the children of God. We're not supposed to be walking around in lawlessness like the world is. So we all need this help. And Jesus comes and speaks to us. He's going to speak to this woman. Isn't that amazing? He just speaks to her. He doesn't grab her and shake her and... He doesn't do anything other than speak, and she hears his voice, and she follows. What an amazing thing. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. So he's wearied because he's on a journey from the Father, and he sits down by a well of water that, that, that has got pollution in it, that is polluted. It kills. It's defeating. It's, 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 it's destroying and intoxicating everybody. And he sits there at noon and he offers living water. Watch. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. <laughs> Do you see the ramifications of Jesus drinking our water? He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He's willing to drink our cup if we will come and drink his cup. He takes our cup of polluted water, our cup of death, where we've been worshiping at our mountain. And he says, here, you can worship in spirit and truth. He takes our cup. This is not a fake conversation. Let me think what I can say to these people. It's not fake. He's entering into a relationship with her. She's going to get water. She's coming there as an outcast. She doesn't want nobody to see her. And what does she do? She walks up on the Lord of glory. And he's willing to share. And he says, give me a drink to see if she'll humble herself. And she's kind of sassy. Watch, she's sassy. She's kind of rude. She's like, watch where she is. But watch where she ends up at. That's the important thing. Not where you were born. Not what you used to be. But what are you now? I might not be who I'm supposed to be. But I'm not who I used to be. After meeting Jesus, he says, give me a drink. Pretty simple. We're at a well. We're here for water. It's hot. Let me get a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. 
Now, I don't know what city they went into, but typically the Jewish people would not eat the Samaritans' food. They treated them like they were pigs, unclean. Not, not, they would not walk in their cities, and they certainly would not go to their markets and buy food that's been sacrificed to false gods. So if they went into the city, Jesus is already working on them really good that they would be willing to go into an unclean city and be a disciple of Christ and go and meet people. So they're already becoming disciples if it's Samaria. It might have been a different city. Maybe they still need work. But they're buying some meat. Some nourishment, some rations is what it means. This sassy woman says in verse 9, after that commentary of where their disciples are at, and we know that they're alone. Do you know that when Jesus comes to you, you're going to be alone? You're worshiping on your mountain, and Jesus is going to come, and it's going to be you and him. It's not going to be you, me, and him. It's not going to be you and your spouse and him. It's going to be you and him. When you meet him, and when you meet him again at the throne room, it's going to be you and him. This is all about you. You. We can put it together and our faith together and we can go out together. But when you meet Jesus, it's you. Intimacy. A marriage. Nobody else involved. And when you meet him at at your judgment seat, it's going to be you and him. Listen. And we're told they're alone. The woman of Samaria said to him, verse 9, How is it that you... Listen how sassy she is. Being a Jew, ask a drink from a Samaritan woman. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, there's people that say that they would not drink out of their cups. They wouldn't drink out of their vessels. They considered them unclean. They were half-breeds. They were Assyrians. They were the dregs of society. There's all kinds of things you can talk about. Um. But she says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Listen to this. Dealings is to hold intercourse in common. Of course, we've talked about this before. Intercourse is the original word for conversation. See, to have inner social intercourse is conversation. So what she's really saying is, you know that Jews don't even speak to us Samaritans. And now we're having some intercourse, some talking, something in common. See, because he comes at the door and he says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone will hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. He wants to sit down and have social intercourse and build a relationship and us to come to know one another. Not just to say a prayer. There's a relationship of intimacy building because there's a marriage going on. And right now he's proposing. He's proposing. He's talking to her. He's trying to deliver her out of her false worship, her the mountain that she's living on. I don't know what that mountain is that you're living on, what you're worshiping at, what you put before God. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's, a, it's another, the opposite sex. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's your health. That's a big one that the devil is trying to really deal with today. That's why pharmacy is so big. He wants to deal with your health. I'm scared to death to die. Why? Jesus defeated death. Why would a Christian be afraid to die? 
if the very thing that Jesus came to do was to destroy death and the works of the devil, which is death, the wages of sin, why would a Christian be afraid to die? Yet they've got us all running around in fear. We need their pharmacy. We need their medicine. We need their help. We need their side effects. We need all the stuff that they have. Did you guys know I meant to mention this? Did you guys know we've been talking about the Caduceus Numbers 21? Did you know that? That's the WHO's insignia. They want us to worship medicine. They want us to come back to sorcery. They want us to practice witchcraft. They want us to go anywhere except to Jesus and give him a drink of our life so he can give us his life. See, listen, if you compare these two waters, he's talking spiritual, she's talking physical. Keep an eye on it. Jesus answered and said to her, verse 10, if you knew... I do. That's the word I do. Remember that? If you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He would have given you the Holy Spirit. It means to live. It's water that's alive. But listen, if you knew, if you understood it's I do. It's a wedding vow to see, to be aware of, to understand what the gift of God. Listen, it means the gratuity of God. It comes from a word that means a sacrifice, an offering, a present. See, Jesus is the gift of God. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the offering. And he's saying, if you knew, if you understood me, so many Christians have no idea who Jesus is. They followed what somebody told them to say a prayer, and they believed that they were okay, but they don't enter in to the marriage. They just say, I do, and then they ignore the groom. They ignore the one who died and saved them. And he says, if you knew, not just if you believed, not just if you, listen to me, go through some religious practices that Nicodemus might tell you about before he got saved, a program, and who it is who says to you, here is God standing in the flesh and says to her, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Listen, if you meet Jesus, be sure to get some living water. He's given it for free. Remember John 3, 16? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whomsoever shall believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Freely given. If you ask... He'll give you the living water, eternal life. The Spirit of God will come in and seal you until the day of redemption. If you, being evil, Luke eleven thirteen, know how to give your children good gifts, how much more will the Father give you the Holy Spirit if you ask? I love it because in Matthew 7, he says, Ask, and you shall receive. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be given to you. Talking about food, shelter, clothing, life, petitioning God for prayer. 
But it's so amazing that, and I always say this, and you guys might not understand this, but my brain works like this. The word knock is spelled with a K. Everybody's went through it with their kids. Knock, N-O, it's spelled with a K. Why is that important? Ask is A, S, seek is S, and K on knock is ask. And in the Greek, it has the, the, the tense of keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. And it literally spells ask. Just keep asking, keep coming. I know people tell you to quit praying. Keep praying. I mean, don't pray if God says, if God says no, you can stop praying. He already said no. That would be vain repetition. When God answers, you don't need to keep asking anymore. Have you asked him for the Holy Spirit? Listen, I find that we have a serious problem in the church today. I talk to people, and they can tell you everything about CRT. They can tell you everything about political parties. They can tell you everything about physical things. But if you ask them about the Bible, they don't know anything. I'm just being real. And it's not going to do you any good to say a prayer and say you believe in Jesus and then give your heart completely to learning everything about the world that's going to burn. I'm not saying walk around and be stupid. You can understand what's going on, but you should be giving your heart to the Word of God, to the calling of God, to the instruction of God, to what God has called you to do, the words of life. Give your heart to learning what He's doing, not what the world is doing. The world is dying. It's passing away. It's going to burn. It has no hope for you. And in fact, if you were even concerned of the world, you would find out what Jesus says because that's the only thing that can help them is living water to put out their fire on the mountain that they're worshiping at. You need to put out their fire with living water and that can only be done with truth. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Now listen, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Draw with is a bailing vessel. Listen, he's drawing her right now. If you read the rest of the text, you'll see his love is drawing her. That's what he's drawing with. That's the vessel that he's going to sacrifice on the cross. It's drawing her. That love that we see, it's the goodness of God that brings men to repentance. Not looking at the world and its evil, looking and knowing who you are and seeing the love of God is what causes you to repent. And the well, again, is deep. She's in a deep well because it's figuratively means an abyss. It means a prison. It is deep. It's a pit, a hole in the ground holding polluted water that she's been drinking from all of her life. And she's become hardened in heart. She tried marriage. It didn't work. Five times divorced. So now she just said, I'll live with this guy. 
I'll disobey what I already know. See, listen, because see, here's something else you didn't know. The Samaritans, although they're worshiping on the wrong mountain, they firmly believed in the Pentateuch. They didn't believe in the rest of the Bible. They firmly believe in the law of God. They firmly believe in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So they know what marriage is. But you can see that her heart is hard. It's in the physical. It's away from God, but he's going to lead her to worship. He's going to lead her to true worship. Watch. It's a deep well. How deep of a well are you in? Where are you drinking from? Did God draw you out? Then come out. Be separate. Don't isolate. Man who isolates seeks his own glory. But come out of the world. And when you go back in, be willing to give them living water. Here she goes, 12. See, she's being sassy. You, and you got to understand what's going on. Now she's saying, so you're tougher than my dad? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? Now she's going to drop names. She's going to claim her only religious status that she has. Who gave us this well? It's an inheritance from the supplanter, the deceiver, the one who stole it. That's a really a good testimony there, lady. Oh, I know he's one of the patriarchs. I'll be careful. But notice she didn't call him Israel, one governed by God. She calls him Jacob. God gave him a new name. Who gave us this well and drank from it himself. We're pretty special people because you know what? We were born in America. My dad was a preacher. My grandma was a... And we start talking about all these things that have nothing to do with living water. Jacob drank from it himself. Look at our idols. Look at our mountain, as well as his sons and his livestock. They've all been nourished from this polluted well that's deep, and it's a pit. It's bondage. It's a prison. And right there is freedom standing right in front of her, offering living water. She wants to change the subject. She wants to talk about the past. She wants to start an argument and brag and walk in her pride, even though she's not Nicodemus. But she's grasping at the only thing that she has. What somebody else has told her, instead of listening to the voice of God. 13, Jesus answered and said to her, notice he sticks with it. He doesn't, he keeps talking about the same thing, no matter what her heart is on. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again contrast but whoever drinks of the water that i shall give him will never thirst but the water that i shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life so physical water she says are you greater are you larger are you more than jacob and then there's physical water if you drink it you're going to thirst again. It means repetition, repetition, repetition. You're going to keep drinking from it. Listen, that's what happens with religion. Lord, I confess my sin again. Lord, I confess my sin again. This is what happens with religion. I'm going to go do it again and again and again. Vain repetition. I'm going to keep saying the same prayer. Religion. Thirst again if you drink from 
physical water, physical programs, physical churches. We just seen one yesterday. We was watching it. They, they have their annual. It wasn't. This wasn't the first one. It was their annual drag queen day. In a nice old cathedral in New York, with a drag queen walking up there, and the whole place going nuts and applauding. And they had the audacity to say church. Do you know that the church once again is the ecclesia? It's the called out ones, not isolating, but called out from, called out from the world to God, with living water in them, and then they go back in to give witness and testimony, and there's evidence that they no longer live there. They're no longer pit dwellers. Whoever drinks of the water I shall give will never thirst. Oh my goodness, are you serious? Never thirst. Listen, never. This is, this is the contrast. Physical, you can talk about physical. I'm talking about spiritual, Jesus says. The word never here is this. Indicating the point reached or entered. And the result is never perish. It's the same word in John 3.16 that says shall not perish. It's the word for perish. That's what that word is if you look it up in the Greek. It's the word that is translated perish. You will never be thirsty again spiritually if you drink from the fountain of living waters. And not only will you never thirst again, but it, it grows in you. It'll well up and become a well of water that gushes out and you gush out on others. And, you, and God uses you when you're full of the Holy Spirit to speak to others and give witness. Have you asked him for his Holy Spirit? Are you still pursuing sin and self and Satan and chasing food, shelter, and clothing? Or have you been given a new anointing, a new calling, a new way of life, a new God, a new mountain to worship on in spirit and truth? Have you asked him for the Holy Spirit? Have you asked him to lead your life? Have you surrendered? Are you crucified with Christ? How are you living? Still fighting over the physical? Or have you decided you want to understand what the spiritual means? What God is saying and hear his voice. Are you still living in your shame and going out to the well at noonday when it's hot and nobody else is around so you don't have to be seen? Are you still crossing the street to keep away from enemies or people that you don't like? You're still holding grudges. Listen to me. These are all things that could be happening in the Samaritan woman's life. Listen, just because somebody hates you don't mean you have to hate them back. You can have Christ in you and you can pray for your enemies. That's what Jesus is doing. He's breaking down all these bounds. Samaritans don't have any dealings with Jews. Well, I'm not a Jew. I'm God in the flesh. And you and I are his bride, and we're supposed to go to others and stop having all of these crazy things that we call uh, prejudices. All these crazy things that they try to get us to call racism. One race, the human race, we're all different. We can be Nicodemus or we can be a Samaritan woman. We can be somewhere in between. But God comes to all of our mountains and says, stop worshiping the physical, and ask me for living water and you'll never 
thirst again. Listen. She doesn't get it at first. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir. Now you're going to see sir several times now, but her tone has changed, right? Her tone has changed. No more sass. Wait a minute. I can get something out of this. Wait a minute. I can get a handout. But he wants to give a hand up. She says, sir. Now, this is important because the word sir is kurios in the Greek. Kurios is the word we typically see translated Lord. It means supreme in authority. Now, she's not calling him that because that word can also be used in reverence and you call somebody sir, but she is using the word kurios and he will become her Lord soon. But right now, it's just sir because she thinks she's going to get a handout. Give me this water. She wants it now. I want that water, but I don't want to thirst again. Now look at the work. Nor ever come here to draw again. See, her, her call or what she's saying is I don't want to come back here in the noonday sun and do the work to get the water. She's not seeing. She still doesn't know. He's going to tell her later. You worship what you don't know. She's not understanding the difference between physical and spiritual. But he'll lead her there, and he's drawing all of us there with his love. If you've met him, you should be in the Word, Prayer, and Fellowship. If you've met him, you should be growing, always on the grow. You should be telling others, sharing with others. Give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. She hates the stigmatism. She hates the prejudices. She hates coming, but she knows that if she comes at noon when it's hot, Nobody will see her. She won't have to deal with all the gossip and the other women whispering. And it's probably hard to draw water out. So Jesus says, okay, you're not getting it. Let me just go right for your heart. Let me just go right to the place that I'm trying to get to. And he says to her, Verse 16, go, call your husband and come here. See, he knows her heart. Do you see the, do you see the, uh, 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 the sovereignty of God? He already knows everything about her. Oh, we need the rest of the testimony. Let me get the rest of the testimony to you. Husband is a male, by the way. Every time you find it in the Bible, just, just, just saying, it's always a man. When the Bible says that a preacher should be the husband of one wife, it doesn't say the wife of one husband. It's very, very significant, very uh, uh, serious, and it's easy to understand. And if you twist it, you end up with something that's not the kingdom of God. If you twist it, you end up in apostasy eventually. Because that's what we're being delivered from is twisting the word of God the way the devil did with Eve. And we're being brought back into obedience to the word of God under the voice of God. We're hearing under with the intent to obey because we know that's the way we're washed and cleansed. So he says to her, let me just go straight to your heart. Let me just start digging and drawing out what's really the problem. It's not about this physical water. You need to have living water. And if you deal with your heart, you can have it freely. Go call your husband and come back here to me. 
The woman answered and said, now listen, Jesus is sovereign. He already knows she doesn't have a husband. So he knew she couldn't go get him and come back to her. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. So he calls out her sin and clearly shows that you should not be living with somebody, sleeping with somebody, and saying, that's my husband. Clearly shows that. He's not your husband. Being a husband and a wife has to be done according to the laws of the land. And it's the only place that the marriage bed is sanctified and sacred and that there should be sexual activity. So notice what happens, though. When he speaks to her heart, she answers honestly. Notice what happens, though, when the Word of God speaks to your heart. It's there to rebuke and convict and exhort. And it's very important to be honest with God because He already knows anyway. But if you argue with Him and you say, oh, no, no, then He never can heal you. That's what every bit of your psychology is today. I, I have this new joke that I suffer from OLD, but it's actually a twisted joke and it's a wrong joke because it actually gives connotation and rise to the fact that ADHD is real. And I got in an argument with a young man the other day about ADHD and I said, well, don't you understand what psychology is? It's a philosophy that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. It's not true. You don't go to man and to this world to find out about human behavior. You come to the fountain of living water. And he tells you that sin is your problem. But if you redefine everything and you change everything's name, you can make sicknesses the problem. And then you can have pharmacy to correct them instead of a God who died and poured out his blood and became a living sacrifice and the free gift of God to heal you from what really ails you. What will take care of some ADHD is good old fashioned training in a child and the way he's supposed to go. And that's also includes a little bit of the board of education to the seat of the pants when they're not behaving, because you will not kill them with the rod, you will deliver their soul from hell. That is scriptural. It's the Bible. I would never condone or tell anybody to be abusive to their children, but to train them and parent them and discipline them is godly. Because if not, you'll let their little hearts chase off and run to hell. And then you'll be saying, what happened to little Johnny when he gets 30 years in prison? Let me tell you about it. I know about it. You can't yell at little Johnny. You have to teach him and train him and educate him and talk to him about godly things. Sorry. Or you can change the name of everything. Oh, that's attention deficit disorder. Oh, that's, uh, that, that's uh, what's the one about rejection of authority? I mean, everything is renamed. But it's psychology, and psychology comes from what's called a dichotomy. Anybody know what a dichotomy? It's two. Psychology comes from leaving God out, and it teaches that a person is flesh and biology, inside and outside. It leaves God out. But we're really, really, we're a trichotomy. We have a spirit, a soul, and a body. 
Not just an inside and an outside, but we have a spirit that's living in this earthly tent that's going to live somewhere for eternity, either under the wrath of God and burning hell or with God ruling and reigning and worshiping him forever. We are a trichotomy, but the church readily accepts psychology, sociology. Even though on this hand over here, we're going, we don't like CRT and Marxism and socialism is bad. And then we run back over here and we go, yeah, that's uh, psychology, the integrated path to psychology. And we can talk about human behavior because it really is true. No, it's not. All of the psychologists were godless men that hated God. It's just the truth. And then we're following them in the church. We're believing them. We're sending people for counseling to the world when we have the living water, the fountain of living water to draw from. When we know exactly what's wrong with mankind. They're in sin and they're fallen and they're rebellious and they hate God. They don't want to listen to God. And we just need to follow Jesus' example where he comes and he speaks to them about spiritual things. And even when they're still talking about physical, yeah, but I like it and it's mine. No, it's not. It belongs to your sister. Give it back or you're going to get a spanking. It's really simple stuff. And if they don't give it back, you give them a spanking. And every time they do it, you give them another spanking. And eventually they learn that you get a spanking for disobedience. That's training in the way that they're going. Because listen, there's going to be a bigger spanking coming. If you want to use it as an analogy, the wrath of God coming quickly too you can see the lawlessness in the street because we've allowed people to do what they want when they want how they want and we don't punish them if it gets any worse i'm going to be suing for some reparations for the 12 years i did in prison because if we're not going to punish criminals i want some time back and that's a joke. I digress. Let's go back to the text. We're running out of time. Listen, she's honest. Are you honest with God? You can't hide it. I have no husband. You might as well tell him. I like that, God. Can you change the pleasure of that? Can you take that desire? I like to do that, God. Just be honest with him. Well, Lord, you know, it's that environment I was raised in. I didn't have a dad, and it was bad, and that's a bunch of nonsense. Adam and Eve were born in the perfect environment, and they rebelled. They're the reason we're here. They were born in the perfect environment. That's why God allowed all this to happen, so you and I would choose as free will agents to desire to follow him. He knew that Adam and Eve would choose what they chose. He wasn't confused by it. He allowed it to happen on purpose and knew he was always going to come. This is not plan B. This is still plan A, to come and die for people who would choose him and believe in him and follow him. And then he would come in and live in his people and inhabit the praises of his people and change their desires and make them like him from the inside out. Because he made them in his image in the garden. And that was free will. And they chose to follow a lie. But if he comes into their heart and lives in their heart and you choose to follow him, now he can train you in righteousness as his child. As you're led by the Holy Spirit, he can change your desires and your ways and give you a whole new nature practically, just like he gave you positionally. 
And soon he'll take the pleasure of sin away from you. And then he'll take you from the presence of sin and glorify you in heaven and let you rule and reign according to the labor that you've done down here. That's what rewards are based on. The labor that you're doing now. Sorry, I better get back to this text. I went off again. Oh, you have well said, verse 17. Oh, that's good stuff, actually. Well said, listen. You and said are the same word. It means to speak or to say. But well said is honestly said. I was honest with God. You spoke truly. You spoke truth because he already knows. And then she, he told her in 18, if you, you've had five husbands, listen, if you've been divorced, just be honest with God. It's sin. God hates divorce. You have to come to God and confess it is sin. It's just like any other sin. If God says don't do it and you do it, it's sin. Don't sit around and argue and blame and be a victim. Just confess it before God that you disobeyed what God's perfect plan was. One man, one woman, for life. Confess it. Don't blame somebody. Get on with life. Move on with life by allowing the, the rivers of living water to well up in you and you be a witness. Be honest with God. Just saying. God already knows. Don't hide it. So when he tells her her heart, which is what the word of God does, it exposes your heart. It's living and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide the bone and the marrow and the soul and the spirit. And it's a discerner. It's a judge of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Hebrews 4.12. That's what God does. That's why it's so important to read it, be in it, talk to him about it. But it does no good to memorize it if we're not going to obey it or have a heart to obey it or at least confess to God. Wow, I see what you're saying. I would like to do that, but I have no capacity to do that. Can you give me the desire and the power to do that? And he'll say, yeah, I'll deliver you through the valley of the shadow of death to the other side. In fact, the only reason there's a shadow in that valley is because I am a greater light looking over you. So when he speaks to her clearly and she sees that he already knows her heart, she says in verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, Kurios, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, prophet, he is a prophet. Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, 15, God will raise up a prophet like me from your brethren. So they all thought it was Joseph, but Joseph was just a type. His name means uh, the Lord is salvation. It's the Hebrew for Jesus. But it was still talking about Jesus coming down the corridor of time. And they were looking forward to that. That's how they were saved by faith. We look back on it. He was a prophet indeed, but he was God, very God. So she said, I, I perceive you're a prophet. It means one who foretells truth. A prophet is one who uh, uh, is an inspired speaker, but he foretells truth and he's speaking about her heart. So now what does she do? I'm in trouble, so I'm going to start an argument. This guy knows a little bit more about the Bible than I do, so I'm going to start an argument. Should you dunk or should you sprinkle? Listen. This is what we all do. 
well, what's the real church? I really don't know which Bible is the best version. And we start all these arguments. Now, look what she says. This is just normal nature. I'm confronted with God. They know my heart. They know I'm in sin. They spoke, and now I just need to start another conversation. So she goes and she says, verse 20, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And you Jews say, see, she's still being haughty, that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Let's start an argument about something. Where should we worship at? What mountain? Who's right? Who's wrong? You ever heard anybody say that to you? Oh, there's so many denominations. I just don't even care. I just stay home. That's good. Stay home. Listen to the devil. Jesus doesn't even pay her any mind. He's still moving in the same direction spiritually to wake her up, to draw her to himself. And he says uh, to her, Jesus said to her, woman, it's a term of endearment. Don't freak out. Today it would be bad. Woman, believe in me or believe me. Listen to what I'm saying and trust it. The hour, the season is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Notice who we're worshiping. When you believe in Christ, you're worshiping the Father. You're bowing down to the Father's will who sent the Son to marry you, to bring you back into His family for His glory. Notice what's going on. And how many times is worship mentioned? Now he's got her to worship, though. Think about this. Even in her haughtiness, even in her rudeness, even in her, 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 her physicalness, he's at least got her into a conversation about worshiping. He's at least got her to admit that I'm worshiping something. At least got her to admit that on Mount Gerizim we're worshiping, and you guys do it in Jerusalem where you built the temple. Well, why? Because of Deuteronomy 12. Let's look at Deuteronomy 12 real quick. Because God had told everybody. They all knew that there was a place where he was going to put his name. They knew that. And so there's this big argument. Where did I say Deuteronomy 12? Hmm, verse 5. We'll start in verse 5. Where am I going to? What did my notes say? Okay. But you shall seek. What are you seeking? If I be lifted up. Seek the Lord. You shall seek the place a building where the Lord your God chooses. Notice it's something God chooses. His temple, his tabernacle in the wilderness. Now he chooses your heart. Out of all your tribes to put his name. Now listen, his name always means his character, his nature, his will, his authority. For his dwelling place was the tabernacle we know that it was destroyed in ad 70 we know that that's what jesus is talking about a season coming time coming you won't worship here or in jerusalem because the temple is going to be gone because now he's put his name his mark upon jesus the christ the anointed and now he lives in our hearts if we believe in him and worship him in spirit and truth and there you shall go. That's where we're supposed to go. Where were you meeting with him at in your heart? There you shall take your burnt offerings. That's a complete dedicated sacrifice. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your free will offerings. Notice, because there's a big argument in the churches about tithing. There's a whole bunch more offerings that the, that the Israel gave. There's a whole bunch of offerings that, Israel, that the Israelites gave that the church just kind of ignores. 
And all we're worried about is a little bit of money so we can pay bills. But there's a bunch more offerings that have to be given if you are actually worshiping God and you're going where his name is at. Your free will offerings. The firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord. See, he wants to knock at the door and have a fellowship meal with you. Revelation 3.20. There you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, your power, your strength, you and your households in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not at all do as we are doing here today. In other words, he's changing. The time is coming. He's moving it away. He's saying, we're not going to do it that way anymore. And now he's announcing it again on this mountain where he must need to go through Samaria, that it's going to change again. And we shouldn't be doing what everyone is doing here today. What what were they doing? Let's see the commentary. Every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. I was singing that on the way to church this morning to the kids. They had no idea what I was talking about. Because that's what it's the book of Judges. No king in the land, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. For as yet you have not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. Listen to me. You'll thirst no more if you drink this living water. You'll thirst no more. You can cease from your works, Hebrews 4, Hebrews 3, going into 4. No, maybe it is 4. You can cease from your works and enter into the rest of God, his works. And stop living in sin and self and Satan and be led by the Holy Spirit. And then call upon his name. There's salvation in no other name but in the name of Jesus Christ. That's where he's chosen to put his name on the anointed. So woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. I do. They don't understand. They don't perceive. We know what we worship, Jesus is saying, of the Jewish nation, for salvation, deliverance to safety, deliverance from the sin nature. Soteria is the Greek word. Deliverance from and back into the family of God is of the Jews. God gave it all to the Jewish nation. Jesus came to the tribe of Judah. And they had went apostate also, sadly. 23, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Isn't that amazing? He's seeking. Well, how's He seeking? He sent His Son to find the lost. And anybody who will believe in His Son can come back to the Father and worship Him. You get married in through the kinsman redeemer. And that hour is now. And true worshipers, those that worship in truth, proskuneo, you bow down, you prostrate yourself before the Lord, and you worship Him. It's in spirit and in truth. And it's your spirit married to His spirit following truth. Who's truth? Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's following the Word of God. It's following what you know about His name, His character, His nature, His will, His authority. For the Father, what is the Father doing? Again, He's seeking. Where's the word at? 
desires, requires. It means desires or requires such to worship him. What's, what's the such? Those that do it in spirit and truth. Your spirit married to his spirit back into the family of God, learning to obey God and follow God and be led by the spirit of God. The breath of life. That's what spirit means. Pneuma. We get pneumatic power tools from it. It's a breath. It's a gust of wind. It's the spirit of God. And you have a spirit that you're uh, like your soul. It's your mind, will, and emotions. It has to be married back to God. It has to be washed and cleansed. He is sanctifying a spirit, soul, and body. Not just a positional spirit, soul, and body. The last ain't body. When you see him, you get a new body. 24, why is it all about the spirit? God is spirit. He's invisible. You can't see him. He's like the wind when he moves. You know he's there. There's evidence, but you can't see him. You don't know where he comes from, where he goes. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And there's two different words here. I believe one of those spirits should be capitalized. The other one's not. One refers to the Holy Spirit. One refers to your spirit because that's where the marriage takes place at. Your spirit married to God's spirit. And then you being led as the bride by God's spirit into all truth. And as you do, he gives you power over sin. He removes the pleasure of sin. And then he's going to eventually take you from the place of sin into his presence forever. Spirit and truth. Oh, one of them is capitalized. God is spirit. But I think one of the other two needs to be capitalized too. But that's just my opinion. Uh, but it has to be the spirit of God. This is book is spiritually discerned. It's a spiritual God. It's, it's a spiritual kingdom. You are a spirit in a body. And you need the spirit to teach you all truth. And lead you in the way that you're supposed to go. Or you'll follow some lie. Like Adam and Eve did. And of course, she didn't fully understand what he was saying. So she said to him in verse 25, I know the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. My goodness, lady, I just did. He didn't say that, did he? But see how she's being led from physical water, haughtiness, rudeness, we don't have any intercourse together. We don't talk. We don't have anything to do with each other. And leading her and drawing this out with his love, his patience, his mercy. And he leads her to worship. And now she's, well, where should I worship? Then he leads her to spirit and truth. And then she says, I know the Messiah is coming. Isn't that amazing that somebody in false doctrine, somebody that doesn't know who they're worshiping, but she's still being a child of Jacob or, or descendant, knew that Messiah was coming, that God had promised a Messiah to come. The whole world knows that. Every person ever born knows that. And you have to fight back. You have to repress that, or what's the word? Suppress it. Romans chapter 1. And deny God and harden your heart and say no to God. But he'll soften your heart. He'll come to your mountain where you're worshiping at and draw out truth. He'll draw out worship. 
the Messiah, the Mashiach of God, the provision of God for the sin nature is coming, who's called the Christ, Christos. He's coming. Guess what? He came. He's talking to you. He died on a cross. He paid for the sins of the world. He rose again on the third day. If you believe that in your heart and confess it with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you say, I do. It's a wedding vow. You agree with God with the same set of facts. At the same time, your spirit becomes married to his spirit. And guess what? He's coming back to take a chosen home because we're not appointed for wrath. That's where we started at in verse 336. The wrath of God is not on us if we believe that. But if we believe that, there's going to be evidence that God revealed himself. Now remember, he didn't tell Nicodemus any of this. Look what he says to this woman, and we'll close. 26, Jesus said to her, this is, this is the voice, I am. Take out all them other words. He's not there. It's in italics. I who speak to you am. Listen, I am is what he said. Ego a me is what he said. I am the self-existing one. He simply says, I am. She would know what that means. It's the same thing he said to Moses in the burning bush. I am that I am. I'm the self-existing one. I'm everything you've ever needed. You don't have to thirst anymore. If you come to me, I'll give you rivers of living water. I'll baptize you in my spirit. I'll fill you up to overflowing so that you gush out on other people. And I'll give you a hope and a future and you'll never perish. You'll never thirst again. Keep drinking from the well of living water. We'll finish it next week. If you want to read ahead, 27 through 45, is that correct? 27 through 45. You'll see that she gets saved and she goes and tells everybody. And then they have to also get saved. They believe her at first because of what she said. But then what happens? Then they have their own intimacy with God and they believe because of what he said. Listen, you believe a witness, but you need to come to know him personally. It's a personal relationship where he's drawing you out. He's using you for his glory. You are his bride. I who speak to you am he. Are you hearing the voice of God? Once again, he never told Nikki this. He never said, I am the Messiah to Nikki. Where's your heart at today, saint? Are you looking to hear the voice of God? Are you looking to worship him in spirit and truth? Are you still trapped on some other mountain, drinking the polluted water of the wells and broken cisterns of this world and thinking, I'm okay, I'm okay, but you're not hearing the voice of God. You're not following the spirit of God. God is spirit. You must be born from above. And if you're born from above, there'll be evidence that you're being led by the Spirit of God and trained in the way that you're supposed to go so you can go out and tell others and they can come to know this God who died for everybody. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for your patience with us, Lord. Lord, pour out your Spirit upon us and help us to understand this great love. 
Fill us full of joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. For against such there is no law. And help us to be honest with you, Lord, and confess our sin. Because then you're faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Lord. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord bless you. And that concludes today's message on Who Am I? with Pastor Greg Tyra of Harvest Chapel in Williamsport, Indiana. If you're in the area, we would love to have you as our guest. Harvest Chapel is located at 418 Old State Road 28, Williamsport, Indiana 47993. We meet for worship on Sundays at 10 a.m. Our prayer meetings meet Wednesdays at 6.30 p.m. Our Bible study meets on Friday at 7 p.m. Today's and previous messages are available on CD. If you would like a copy, please call 765-404-7203. We look forward to seeing you again next time on Who Am I? Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? Because I